Epigenetics Podcast Episode 20. Welcome to the 20th episode of the Epigenetics Podcast. My name is Stefan and I'm part of the technical support and marketing team of Active Motif. Our special guest for this episode is Eris Liebermann Aiden from Baylor College of Medicine and Rice University in Houston. And now let's dive right into the interview. So thanks to the coronavirus, we are now connected via Skype to, to Eris Liebermann Aiden. And there might be some some noises coming from the background because homeschooling is uh, going on uh, <laughs> at his uh, house. So thank you, Eris, for joining me today. Um, please let me quickly introduce you to our, to our audience. You grew up in Brooklyn and studied mathematics, physics, and philosophy in Princeton. You also earned a master's degree in history at Yashevia University. I hope I pronounced this correctly. And you then proceeded to complete a joint PhD in mathematics and bioengineering at the Harvard-MIT Division of Health Sciences and Technology. And you are now an assistant professor at the Baylor College of Medicine. Um, a question I like to ask every guest to start off our little podcast is, how did you become interested in biology in the first place and then in pursuing a career in science? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's a good question. I was doing, um, you know, very theoretical work as an undergrad. And I just thought I would like to do something that's going to be used in a closer to my lifetime. Um, you know, I mean, there's, there's a lot of, you know, deep applications of, uh, uh, you know, uh, theoretical work in physics and, and, you know, pure mathematics, but, uh, It's not, it's not the place to go if you want to see your work used sometime around your lifetime, um, which is the criticism of it, but, uh, you know, just a, a fact um, that I think that many practitioners would embrace with great pride. But I, I felt that that wasn't, uh, you know, what I wanted to be doing. So I, I wanted to look for areas where I could apply um, those kinds of ideas uh, on a shorter time scale. And, you know, I mean, it was very natural to think about biology, both because the inherent level of interest in biomedical problems is enormous, right? I mean, you know, uh, you know, right, right during college is when I had, uh, I don't know, I don't know, but for me in the first close relatives that I had who passed away of medical reasons, you know, it happened in college. And, you know, that got me thinking about, you know, biomedicine. And then, uh, I, started to see just the amazing transformations that were taking place in biology uh, in and around the genome project. And that was incredibly appealing as well. And so it became a very natural place to look. This leads me uh, right into your science and your first uh, science paper, because you were first author of a science paper in 2009 titled Comprehensive Mapping of Long-Range Interactions Reveals Folding Principles of the Human Genome, essentially describing HiC. So could you briefly explain your thought process behind developing this method and also a little bit the method itself? Yeah, absolutely. Um I mean, there's an incredibly long tradition of doing DNA-DNA proximity ligation assays. I mean, this goes back to 
actually precedes the discovery of things, you know, like DNA ligase. Actually, folks, you know, at Caltech would take restriction fragments and watch them turn into circles uh, and, you know, use that to deduce things about the flexibility of DNA. Um, the, I mean, this, so this tradition really had been, you know, worked on for, for many decades and uh, there was work, um, you know, very important work on nuclear ligation assay by Catherine Cullen um, and on, you know, chromosome confirmation capture by Yope Decker. Uh, and, and all of these were methods that used the general principle that you could get two bits of DNA to ligate in a proximity-dependent fashion. So if they were close, they ligate. If they're far, they don't tend to ligate. Um, and you could exploit um, that tendency, specifically you know, using enzymes like P4DNA ligase, uh, to figure out things about DNA's spatial configuration, spatial dynamics, things like that. So there was a very powerful tradition in that space. And, uh, you know, I was sitting around at the time of, you know, the first Illumina sequencers. At the time, they were actually called Selexa sequencers. And it was this amazing thing that was happening where, you know, you looked around and you could see protocols that had been, you know, very, very low throughput all of a sudden become very rapid, you know. Genome resequencing becomes very rapid. You know, if I'm looking for, you know, uh, instead of, you know, using, you know, chip qPCR, all of a sudden I can do chip seq. There's all these ways if you could translate your problem into the language of sequencing, you could do pretty well, right, in terms of enhancing enhancing the throughput. So that was sort of a thing that was, was happening. And, uh, you know, uh, in the background, there was also a lot of discussion of the question of how did genetic regulation work, right? I mean, you know, you're in, you know, the early days of ChIP-seq, things like that. So there's a lot of questions about genetic regulation. And I felt, you know, personally that when it came to that, there's often this sort of invocation of 3D architecture, but, you know, sort of a magical-like invocation because nobody really knew how any of it worked. So just sort of magical. And so that got me thinking about this problem of, you know, could you apply you know, some of these new sequencing methods. And then, uh, you know, I attended this conference where someone gave a talk about mapping a loop using, you know, proximity ligation based methods. And it had taken them like months and months and months to characterize a single loop. But I found actually the talk, you know, fascinating. I said, you know, how can we increase the throughput of this? And so I worked, uh, together with, uh, Andy Gnarki and, uh, Eric Lander and, uh, you know, Chad Nussbaum and others at the Broad Institute to think about how you could create a high throughput assay for probing genome architecture. And then we came up with an approach and then I, I pitched Yob Decker, um, on the approach and, and he was, uh, keen to work with us. And so, you know, I ended up working closely with his postdoc, Minka Van Berkham, uh, and Louise Williams at the Broad Institute to, uh, uh, you know, Put together this assay, and I mean, again, it you know really builds on decades of work uh, in the space. The same, you know, the same core reaction use T4 DNA ligase to cause two bits of uh, DNA to fuse uh, when they're in close proximity. Um, 
the real innovation that we had was in order to uh, enable you to do this genome-wide, um, so you could probe every single locus. That was the name of the game. Um, in the previous approaches, you typically use something like PCR or gel electrophoresis, whatever it is, to target this locus or that locus. The question was, how could you avoid targeting loci? And uh, the core idea was, why don't we biotinylate the ligation junctions? So basically, you, you freeze the genome in place with formaldehyde. Um, you cut the genome with restriction enzymes. This, you know, basically, you know, is nuclear ligation assay, chromosome conformation capture, and you fill in the ends with biotinylated uh, nucleotides, and then you use the T4 DNA ligase. So that that filling in the ends with the biotinylated nucleotides was a novel step, um, and what that meant was that all the ligation junctions were marked, um, and so you could pull them down um, using stripped avidin. Uh, afterwards, you could sequence them in a high throughput fashion. This trick is a good trick um, for, for purifying ligation junctions. And in that fashion, I mean, initially we could look at a few contacts, like literally you do a sequencing run and you get like, you know, um, a handful of contacts out of it. But eventually we were able to do this stuff, uh, you know, efficiently enough that now we can do, you know, billions and billions of contacts from a single sample. And at a certain point, the statistical tide turns. And, you know, yeah. you start to be able to answer the questions that you've wanted to answer for a long time. Yeah. So in the same paper, you described that chromatin takes on the conformation of a fractal globule. Uh, what, what does this exactly mean? How do... Yeah, so... What does so it that's, describe? That's a terrific question. So uh, this is really, you know, kind of early days for chromatin architecture. So very, very little was, was known. But there was a very basic question that came up, which is, according to polymer theory, uh, if I have a long, dense polymer, it ought to form, there's only really one state that had been pretty well characterized that was associated with long, dense polymers, um, such as presumably the genome, uh, and that was this equilibrium globule state. Um, and the equilibrium globule state is very highly knotted. So it was this, you know, funny sort of structure, but people thought, well, there's topoisomerase, I bet the knots just don't matter. Um, anyway, I mean, there's no arguing with, you know, the fact that this was, this was really the consensus among polymer theorists about how condensed, you know, long condensed polymers look. So, you know, that's, that's where that field was at. Uh, and then all of a sudden, you know, we got this high C data and, you know, I started plotting the data and I was like, look, you know, this does not look like what you would get from an equilibrium globule. Um, and that was really puzzling. That was really very puzzling. And then, you know, the question was, what could it possibly, um, you know, what could it possibly look like? Um, and, uh, I, you know, it was just, I would just read every paper I possibly could about condensed polymers. Um, it was very upsetting actually. I mean, it's, it's crazy. Yeah. Like it's years later. Right. So I don't feel, you know, that same intensity, but at the time there was very, very little known about what, how the genome ought to fold, um, at any scale. And so the notion that it ought to be something like an equilibrium globule was sort of a positive control in my mind. It was something that had to work because the theory said it was supposed to work. And I was very upset actually 
that it didn't. I was like deeply upset about this. Um, Mm -hmm. And uh, I spent a whole bunch of uh, time just reading every paper I could about condensed polymers, just trying to understand any other theories about how condensed polymers might fold. And then, you know, it was like, I don't know, 1 a.m. some night when I see this paper by uh, Shura Grossberg um, and, uh, you know, Sergei Nechaz and Eugene Shaknovich in, uh, you know, this, you know, relatively uh, obscure French physics journal, which was just phenomenal, right? I mean, it basically said, you know, look, if you have a polymer as long as the genome, it's just going to take too long for it to get to that equilibrium. And it's going to end up in this crumpled up state, which has this sort of fractal crumpling. So the, the paper actually calls it in one place, parenthetically, a fractal globule. Elsewhere, it calls it a crumpled globule. Anyway, I did have the bright idea of reading this paper and thinking about it. I was like, I had two bright ideas, right? Um, one was, gosh, this seems like relevant, right? I mean, it's, you know, I don't have any deep physical insight or something, but I was like looking at this paper and I was like, gosh, this paper um, is a breathtakingly elegant model, which describes essentially this crumpling across scales uh, of, uh, of the genome, which would lead to an unknotted structure, um, an unknotted genome that could be sort of pulled apart at many different scales. Um, and I was able to realize that what they were proposing would produce the uh, relationships that we were observing in the high C data, that it was consistent with high C data, unlike the equilibrium globule. Um, and uh, I realized that nobody was going to be interested in something called the crumpled globule. But if you called it the fractal globule, probably people would find it intriguing. Um, so I, I did a little bit of, you know, just tweaked the branding a little bit. So we referred to it as the fractal globule um, in the paper. And then I, uh, you know, was, I did a lot of simulation. Nobody quite knew how to simulate a fractal globule. So I did a lot of work on space filling curves, which is a sort of mathematical abstraction that, you know, has long been thought to resemble uh, the fractal globule. And then, uh, you know, that was okay, but it had some, you know, important limitations. And so then uh, my, so the person who used to sign my course cards at the time when I was in grad school was uh, Leonid Murney. So I would kind of update him every six months with what I was doing and then he would sign my course cards. Um, so anyway, so I told him what I was doing and, and you know, uh, we started to collaborate on, on trying to actually simulate a fractal lobule. And uh, so I ended up working closely with uh, uh, Maxim Inokhaev, um about that. Um, and, you know, the simulations were, you know, had, you know, demonstrated, right, that, that you really, you had this consistency um, as well. So they were, you know, kind of consistent with these, you know, analytical approximations and consistent with the paper. So that led to this um, pro- proposition of the fractal globule model. Now, I, I should say that, like, you know, um, I mean, all models are false, right? Some models are just less false than others. I, I think the fractal globule is not, I mean, it's been 10 years, you know, the fractal 
probably was like, you know, for a, for a physical model, you know, like, you know, sort of, you're like a senior citizen, right? I mean, you know, not, there's not a lot of models that are like the standard model of physics, right? That has, can like live that long, right? So, so, you know, as a biophysical model, you know, the fact that Rob was kind of a senior citizen, I, I don't know, I, I don't want to, it's not a good friendly, I, no, I shouldn't say it's, it's very old. It's, uh, it's not a senior citizen because that's disrespectful to senior citizens. The fractal globule is less wrong than the equilibrium globule. But okay. there are things, you know, that have arisen that are even less wrong than the fractal globule. So I think what was exciting about the fractal globule is the first time that you could say, look, I'm going to talk about how the genome folds, the genome specifically, and I'm going to be able to bring pretty darn powerful data to bear on it and say, look, it can't possibly be this, and, and maybe it's that, right? And there was that, you know, sort of moment. And, and it, it also highlighted there were stakes in the question, right? If I say the genome is, you know, highly knotted versus the genome is unknotted, people can appreciate that the way the genome is going to work is going to be pretty darn different in this scenario versus that scenario. In this scenario, everyone thought, well, topoisomerase saves the day all the time, right? That's how the whole thing works. In this scenario, you say, well, topoisomerase, you know, has a role, but actually the whole architecture is designed to facilitate, you know, being able to access some piece, moving pieces around, et cetera. So what I think it was, was, you know, a case study in some ways that you could use genomics data and polymer physics data fruitfully together to gain some insight about uh, the ways in which a genome might fold and that that insight could be sufficiently deep that a biologist could kind of get why they should care, right? You kind of get why you should care whether it's knotted or not. So I would say that that's, that's really what it did. I mean, ultimately, is it a fractal globule? Uh, I don't look, you know, I mean, you get to philosophy yeah. about whether it's fractal globule or not, but clearly the field has had to advance theoretically past that and has advanced theoretically past the moment of the fractal globule. But I would say that it's more like a fractal globule. I still think it is more like a fractal globule than equilibrium globule, um, you know, but... Uh, but you then... Yeah. You then ap uh, apl applied your method high seed to find what you call contact domains, right? So this is then more the the area you are thinking of, or the that. Well, the goal from the outset was to map loops. Um, the problem, and this was not, you know, uh, this was a somewhat dubious thing. So I did a back of the envelope calculation um, when I initially you know, sort of came with, you know, this idea, you know, together with, with Eric and, and Chad and Andy, you know, initially came up with this idea, sort of did a back of the envelope calculation of like, look, given reasonable assumptions, um, how hard would it be to detect all the loops in the human genome? That was the goal. The goal was to detect promoter enhancer loops in order to understand distal regulation. But when I did a back of the envelope calculation, it suggested to me that one would need to do more sequencing that had been done in the history of the world um, at that <laughs> time. Um, yeah. I did not advertise that back of the envelope calculation in early talks about high C, but I still, I mm -hmm. figured, look, if we could get the protocol working, you know, and I was very, I benefited enormously from amazing collaborations with Louise Williams and, and Ninka Van Berkham, uh, Louise and Andy Gnerke's uh, group and, and uh, Ninka Van Berkham and, and Yob Decker's group. Um, to, to get the protocol working. But I figured if we get the protocol working, you know, you could kind of 
um, you know, just be scrappy and do something with whatever data you got, you know, you could mm-hmm. do some interesting things with it. And, and so, you know, you saw these, uh, you know, squares on the diagonal and then with better data, you start these squares off the diagonal. So now, you know, you've got to be scrappy with the data and say, Hey, they look like there's a compartment effect where, you know, the genome is, you know, partitioned into A-type domains and B-type domains and the A-type domains co-segregate with one another and the B-type domains co-segregate with one another. And then, you know, you could sort of play the polymer physics game and kind of be scrappy that way and get something out of it that you didn't quite um, know was going to be there going into it. Um, But that was sort of the plan. The plan was see if you get the protocol to work. If you get the protocol to work, be scrappy and say, tell an interesting story with the protocol. And then a miracle will happen. And at some point, we'll be able to do more sequencing than could have been done in the history of the world. Or this back in the envelope calculation, which is anyway garbage, is going to be wrong by terms of magnitude. And regardless, a miracle will happen and we will be able to map the loops. Um, that was roughly the plan and roughly what you know actually took place. I mean, the protocol, you know worked and uh you know we kind of scrappily identified some some interesting effects to talk about in a paper and then a miracle happened called you know illumina and selexa and just that amazing period of time where they were just crushing moore's law um you know and uh you know you might argue it's the the market economy right there was all there was all these (laughs) right you know and they were just crushing moore's law there for a while and, you know, indeed, you know, and our group was, you know, kind of looking at other problems and looking at this problem. This was when I was starting, starting up my group. But, you know, indeed, by the time we wrote again on the topic, we had managed to do more sequencing than had been done in the history of the world up to the time of the original high speed paper. It was five years later. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, we would just run these high seek 2500s basically like nonstop, you know, as I... Uh, yeah, I mean, we just run these things nonstop, figuring that this sequence, you know, the theory says it should converge, you know, we should be able to see this. And, uh, you know, so that was the, that was the idea, you know, and, and so, you know, that was an amazing, is an amazing time, right? Because the fact that it was just built on top of this Illumina short read DNA sequencing just meant that all of a sudden things went from completely impossible to like totally possible um, and, you know, in significant part because, uh, the technology was just moving so darn fast. Now I should say that there were fundamental problems with the original high C technology that actually precluded the mapping of loops. Um, that was, uh, a discovery of, uh, you know, two really terrific students of mine, uh, Miriam Huntley and, and Suhas Rao. Um, and it was a very expensive discovery because, you know, you run the sequencer, you know, you know, every day for months on end and then you discover that your data is something wrong with it, right? That's devastating. I mean, it's just devastating, right? Um, and we, what, was, what was the problem? Um, there were two problems. Um, one problem was that the original dilution high C protocol was too, it, it did too much damage to mm-hmm. the underlying chromatin. So up till, you know, 2014, um, it had been widely thought that the best way to do, you know, 
DNA-DNA proximity ligation assays, such as chromosome confirmation capture, was to take the chromatin and uh, dilute it massively before you did the ligation, that this would prevent off-target effects. Um, in fact, that's not so. And, you know, we showed that in, in our paper, which is only my second paper, really, about high C, which appeared in 2014. Um, so we showed that that was not so. So the question is, given that, uh, so, so you couldn't see loops. I mean, you're just, just disrupting the loops. You couldn't see them at all in these uh, dilution maps. And, and I mean, the data quality, I think, has improved, you know, in our experiments. And I think, I think it's fair to say that across the field, people, you know, recognize that you've you got to do these things without disrupting the underlying chromatin. So you've got to do these things in intact nuclei um, because it just dramatically improves the data quality. Anyway, so the question is, we couldn't see the underlying phenomenon. So um, why was this such a big problem? I mean, the problem is that if you don't know what you're doing and we didn't know what we were doing, right? Um, you can't tell that you can't see your phenomenon. So you think my algorithm is running and it's finding something, and I bet that's what I think it is. And, uh, you know, we had algorithms, we had ideas about how one might go about polling, looping features, et cetera. Those ideas turned out to be wrong, but we didn't realize that they were wrong for years, right? We were literally writing papers about phenomena that just don't exist. Um, and uh, it was because our algorithms were wrong. And one of the problems I would say, a very foundational problem is a high C matrix, right? Uh, can have easily trillions of matrix entries. There was no software to visualize. Basically, you're looking at yeah. a matrix that has about as many entries as Google Earth maps of uh, the surface of the Earth. There was just not software for visualizing that kind of matrix. So every time you tried to visualize a high C matrix, it was like a humongous process. I mean, and uh, I spent like a year writing a high C, you know, dynamic high C browser, and it was horrible and it took forever, and it was just such an operation to do, um, to see anything that you kind of wouldn't visualize stuff until very, very late in the game. And so then I, you know, had the great fortune of starting to work with uh, Jim Robinson and, and Neva Durand on a really, really good data visualization system for high C, which worked like Google Earth. That was the idea. It was like, Google Earth has solved this problem. Let's just do the same thing for high C matrices. And so then a couple of things kind of happened at at once, which is that we started to look at our, you know, analytical algorithms. And it was really Miriam Huntley, I should say, who has, you know, unbelievable scientific integrity. I mean, just like a phenomenal, phenomenal scientific integrity and just, you know, a, just this searching desire to understand how everything can be reconciled. And she really, you know, started to realize in her work that, uh, things weren't squaring, right? There were parts of our analysis that just couldn't be squared with other parts of our analysis. And so then I started to look at it with her and, and, and with Suhas uh, Rao, you know, was also, you know, leading that project. Uh, and now we suddenly had Juicebox, right? Which was this tool for visualizing IC data. And, you know, once we had Juicebox, we started looking at it and we're like, gosh, this doesn't look like it's supposed to, you know? And it wasn't like one outlier anymore. It was like, I can just browse around and look at hundreds and thousands and tens of thousands of features that I think are there. And they don't look, they don't look right at all in the matrix. And that led to years of delays. I mean, in rewriting literally everything that we were doing and realizing that all the papers that we were drafting were just wrong. Um, but, 
you know, we understood things better. And, and that I think, uh, that I think made it worth it. Um, that I think made it worth it and highlighted, you know, for me, just the importance of data visualization, right? The fact that we were reasoning about the data using algorithms as an intermediary and as a sole intermediary held us back, you know, and then all of a sudden when we could use our eyeballs as an intermediary, it gave us this orthogonal way of looking at the data and checking whether what we were doing was right. And we were able, I think, to, to kind of correct course. So anyway, I'm sorry, that was very, very long as responses go, but there was the but the point is that we were then able to, uh, you know, what, what Sue and Miriam showed is that if you kept the chromatin, uh, so, so the long and the short of that is once all of that was done, we realized the experiment wasn't working. And this was a really expensive experiment, right? I mean, so <laughs> that was pretty devastating. Anyway, then we went back and we said, what would it take to get these experiments to work? We realized if we did, if we followed the approach of nuclear ligation assay, um, published by Catherine Cullen in, in 1993 in, in Science, she actually did it very interestingly because they would keep the nuclei intact. And so we said, let's try to keep the nuclei intact as we do all of this. And then the data quality really improved. And all of a sudden, we could see the features that we wanted to see. Um, and that was very, very exciting. And so we were able to get onto the right road. But I mean, we kind of went the wrong way for, for several years there. Um, and it's a real testament, I think, to um, you know, Suas and, and Miriam and the entire team, because of their dedication to writing things that were correct and, and being really, really careful was just absolutely immense. And I mean, they had just so many deep insights uh, to get us through that. But then all of a sudden, you know, we kind of understood what was going on a little bit better. Um, and, and it became possible, you know, for us to map loops with some degree of confidence. Yeah, this is now what everybody sees, like the, these these loop uh, charts and everything. But in the last couple of years, you were also trying to find like the factors which play a role in these loop formations, like CTF, like coazine. Um, so, what did you find out about those factors that play a role in those loop formation things? Yeah. So the key thing is, once you have an accurate list of loops, right, then you're like in good shape. So in our early assays, like we were kind of concluding that every single thing under the sun was a looping factor. This was a looping factor. That was a looping factor because, you know, we we're just finding all this stuff that, that really were sort of statistical phantoms. Uh, but then once we had a really accurate list of loops, you could notice that there were just certain factors that were vastly overrepresented. So critically, cohesin and CTCF just jumped out as the key factors. Um, and so that was... Um, That was very striking. So as soon as we had that loop list, we pretty quickly figured out, hey, CTCF and cohesin are the key factors. And the question is how they were doing it. And the really, really strange thing was uh, the observation that this is like this truly weird happening. So CTCF motifs are about 10 or 15 bases long. Uh, and if you have, uh, and as, but they're not palindromic. Right. So in some sense, you can think of a CTCF motif as either pointed forward or backward along the genome. So if I have a pair of CTCF motifs, such as we were observing at the opposite ends of these loops, you can think of them as both pointing forward or both pointing backward, or they could point towards one another or they could point away from one another. And, you know, at random, you would expect them to, you know, have, you know, sort of random orientations. So you run into each of these uh, things with, you know, probably 25%. But the strangest thing was that when we looked at the motifs that were anchoring our loops, 
they were pointing towards one another, like overwhelmingly, like over 90% of the time. This is statistically totally impossible. It's an insane result. It's insane. Because in biology, we're used to seeing, oh, it's a little enriched. This is 10% enriched, 30% enriched, it's fivefold enriched, et cetera. But, you know, like this is something where, you know, the P value, I mean, P value is whatever, but like, you know, the P values are like, you know, incalculable, right? It's just, you know, it's always this. It's never always that. In biology, if it's always that, it's a bug in your code. And this is what we thought for like months. It's a bug in the code, right? Because it can't be always that. But, you know, we never found the bug in our code. I should say, actually, after the paper came out, you know, people would walk up to me at conferences. They're like, you know, nice paper, but that conversion rule thing, it's a bug in your code, right? There's something wrong with it. Can't be. Um, but that was a total mess. That was a total mess. I mean, it, uh, the reason is that not only was it like a rule, it was so rule-like, you know, it was such a strong effect uh, was one thing. Second was physically unbelievably strange effect, right? And you're thinking, I mean, at the time, basically everybody thought that the way that loops form is by diffusion. So you have like a looping factor that lands at one site in the genome, a looping factor lands another site in the genome, and then those sites sort of wiggle around and diffuse until they hit each other and then they hold hands. Um, and that's how loops form. And that was pretty much what everybody thought and had thought for decades. Um, so that model is like impossible to square with the convergent rule. How in the world would you know to hold hands if you're pointing towards another, if you're not pointing towards another? That's a really hard calculation to make because you know, just to give a sense of scale, if you blow everything up by a factor of a million, right? The CTCF protein is the size of a P. The loop that connects the CTCF protein can be kilometers long. So, you know, how can that be? How do you know if you're pointing towards one another or you're not? It didn't make any physical sense. It made really no physical sense. Um, so that was unbelievable. I mean, it was just, a, you know, wrong on many levels um, that we'd observe that. But, uh, you know, we spent a lot of time thinking about it. Um, and, uh, realized that, uh, you know, we had, we had had all these different models of like loops could form this way, loops could form that way. But we realized that actually all of a sudden we had an unbelievably powerful tool for determining how loops form, because this was a result, like there's so many things, you know, in physics where tweak the model a little bit, it does this, I tweak the model a little bit, it does that, you know, but like kind of most models can do most things if you, you know, strangle them hard enough, you know, or even if you just push them a little bit, right? All of a sudden we had a behavior that was coming out of our data robustly that you just couldn't get at all via like whole classes of models, just couldn't do that, right? It's just like, I have no idea how to do that trick. You know, it's like, I don't know, teaching, you know, Spanish to penguins, right? It's just impossible. They just can't do that. Um, and that was like incredibly powerful. And, and we uh, actually, you know, came to the realization that uh, there's really only one possible model that seemed to work well with this idea. And that's the model of, uh, of loop extrusion. So we realized that if you, um, you know, if, if I have basically, um, it, instead of loops forming so the diffusion model loop forms and it's very big when it initially forms. It forms it's full, fully grown. In loop extrusion, it's not so. The idea is that it's sort of, you know, a loop forms and it's very, very, very small. 
you know, because I have my two cohesins, actually, sort of, it could be two, it could be four, it could be one, it could be, I don't know, some number of cohesins we thought must land on the DNA. And we thought that because cohesin is donut shaped. So it was a reasonable thing to think. In hindsight, maybe it wasn't so reasonable. I don't know. But at the time, we thought cohesin is donut shaped. It's thought, you know, that it can encircle DNA. So it was natural to think that some number of cohesins can land adjacent to one another on chromatin and form a tiny, tiny, tiny little loop. And then they could just slide in opposite direction while being physically tethered in 3D. So I have my two chromatin rings, for instance, and my two, my two cohesin rings, they're physically tethered in 3D. And they initially bind to adjacent sites in, uh, in 1D. So they form a tiny loop. But then as they slide apart on the genomes, they're sliding apart in 1D, but they're staying together in 3D. Um, and so what you're forming is a bigger and bigger and bigger loop. And all of a sudden that added an interesting feature, which is that there was all of a sudden orientation in the problem right? A cohesin would either hit a CTCF from one side or from the other. And so if you reason that for whatever reason, CTCF, you know, cohesins would only arrest the CTCFs pointing in a particular direction, you could then explain the convergent rule. So, you know, we realized that, um, you know, a number of other groups, you know, made similar realizations, you know, at that time. So, you know, I know while our paper was in under review, there was a preview, you know, that came out from Victor Corsis group that had realized that the extrusion model could explain the convergent rule. And then shortly thereafter, there was a preprint on bioarchive from Leonid Murney's group that, you know, realized that the convergent rule could be explained by loop extrusion. And our, our paper, uh, you know, got published like a few weeks after that. So all of a sudden you went from like nobody talking about loop extrusion to, you know, a lot of people talking about loop everybody yeah and uh and you know i mean it's uh that's actually it's been quite exciting because you know you shortly thereafter had you know a wave of molecular biology experiments that we participated in um you know knocking out the individual factors and seeing you know seeing what happened and you know that was really beautiful work led by suhas rao in our group to disrupt cohesion and show that you wiped out all the loop domains very rapidly and could bring them back by bringing back the lease. And it's beautiful work by uh, Elfeda Nora doing similar things with CTCF and, and other groups, you know, um, you know, Ben Rowland's group doing, um, you know, beautiful things with uh, Wapple, the police and unloading factor um, and a team led by Schwarzer and others doing uh, the same sort of thing with NIPL, which was thought to be the police and loading factor. Maybe it's not the police and loading factor, you know, you know, anyway, um, you know, but all these groups, you know, started to look at these pieces and, and the picture started to kind of come together. And, uh, you know, then you started to have the single molecule folks show up and just do these beautiful single molecule assays. And it's really, you know, Jan Michael Peters and Case Decker, who have shown very beautifully that SFC complexes, you know, extrude loops under the microscope. And uh, it was a really beautiful, you know, how an idea so rapidly, you know, went from, you just had these rapid cycles of, you know, experiments and then theory and then, you know, experiments and then, you know, theory and then experiments. And you just had this just beautiful um, commingling of uh, yeah. methods in a way that we don't often see in biology, right? I mean, how often, yeah. you know, are you talking about, you know, you know, 
purely theoretical methods, you know, and then single cell methods and, you know, molecular biology type approaches and genomics type approaches, you know, all kind of contributing to very rapid, this very rapid and exciting conversation that really led to, I mean, today, you know, like everyone, I guess, I don't know, everyone seems to think it, right? It was just dangerous, right? Everyone shouldn't really think anything, but, uh, you know, everyone seems to think it's, you know, loop extrusion and, and convergent yeah. rule and all of that stuff. So, so that was very good. I mean, there are other pieces of that that were actually a big, a big mess in terms of, you know, how does all this relate to gene expression? It's a big mess. But the loop extrusion story is like this, you know, like amazing. It's sort of worked better than one could possibly have imagined. Yeah. So since we are approaching our next teleconference, I guess uh, maybe a last question. Uh, so what? Yeah, maybe a twofold question. <laughs> so what are your plans for the near future? Do you have something in the pipeline that's coming out uh, really soon? And do you see this loop extrusion field? Is it more like a competition or more like a stimulating effect in the end? I mean, I think, you know, it depends, you know, who you are, right? Who whether it's competition. I mean, yeah, you know, look, obviously there's competitive elements to science. I think there are certain groups that, you know, view this stuff as very competitive and zero sum, you know, uh, you know, my feeling is, you know, if you're, you know, uh, you know, friendly, you know, towards myself and my students, you know, yeah, sometimes we're going to win and sometimes we're going to lose. Sometimes we'll do something first. Sometimes we'll do something, you know, less, but, you know, it's fine. Uh, I mean, ultimately science is not done by individuals. Science is something that, you know, you know, a large number of humans in every generation do, and everyone contributes in some infinitesimal way. And as a collective, you know, we push the ball up the hill, um, you know, and, you know, the, you know, and the, the great value of it is that, you know, collectively it, it leads to something that looks like durable human progress. Um, so, you know, I mean, I think we're very happy to see i think the immense progress that's you know been made in the field and and how much it's expanded and you know and how much some of this stuff which you know didn't seem you know sort of very reasonable early on is, is working very well uh, you know in terms of what what is my group doing now there's a lot of different problems that we're working on one of the things we didn't have a chance to talk about is just that high c is actually if you're attempting to assemble a genome um that has always involved putting the pieces in order. Turns out that 3D data is very powerful for putting the pieces in order. And, uh, and my postdoc, Olga Duchenko, has done really beautiful work um, now that's become you know, very widely used in creating robust algorithms for assembling genomes very inexpensively. So you can now do you know, roughly what the Human Genome Project did for you know, order $1,000 or less, and you can even greatly exceed the human genome project if you combine this stuff with, with long reads. So I think there's a lot of opportunities, you know, from just being able to sequence every species under the sun. And, and that's something that, um, you know, we're certainly pursuing. Um, and then I would say the big mystery in the architecture field is we understand actually a lot of nuclear architecture now. But what we're terrible at still is what is the relationship between the architecture and transcriptional levels? How can I determine patterns of genetic regulation using architectural data? That is still a very, very big puzzle. You know, I mean, you know, every time you write a paper, you sort of make obeisance to the fact that you're kind of trying to do this and you've had some sort of success. But, you know, there are successes and there are successes, you know, like um, 
architecture has had a sort of extrusion moment, right? Where so many results suddenly become clear of their simple theoretical, you know, and model, you know, based rubric, right? And all of a sudden, a lot of things work that just didn't work before. But transcriptional regulation, you know, and its relationship to architecture hasn't had that moment. It hasn't had a success of that caliber or close to that caliber. And uh, ultimately, you know, that's what the business is about. I mean, nuclear architecture, I think, has value as a branch of biological physics. And, and it has value as, you know, a set of, you know, questions about polymers and questions about, you know, the nucleus. Um, and it, it has a lot of value on that level. But where it speaks to everybody and every question, I believe, and I continue to believe, will still be um, through its ability or, or lack of ability to explain how it is that genes can be regulated by elements at a distance and thus to help us unravel um, the patterns that underlie uh, gene expression and the, the mechanistic basis for why certain genes are on in certain cell types. Uh, and that aspect of the field remains largely unsolved and remains an extraordinary opportunity, I think, for new students. Um, you know, it remains in an era, I would say, prior to that of, you know, that of bring it back to the conversation, the equilibrium versus the fractal globule. We don't even know what the right models are. We have no idea what the right models are for how that even works. And uh, I think if the field is to make a durable contribution to biology uh, as a whole, I think it, we must tackle that question one way or the other. I think that's a good uh, finishing sentence for this uh, podcast. Uh, I could ask you many more questions but but uh, for this uh, for the scope of this interview i think that's that's fine thank you Ernest, for your time it was a pleasure uh, talking to you yeah my pleasure great chatting and yeah if you have any other questions or you need to add a minute or two of this or that or the other i'm, I'm happy to follow up this was the 20th episode of the epigenetics podcast thanks for listening i really hope you enjoyed it please rate review and subscribe our podcast so you never miss an episode we are happy to receive your feedback on Twitter, Facebook or LinkedIn. We will read all your reviews and comments and give you a shout out on a future episode. If you have any further questions, you can also reach me at podcast.activemotive.com. For more great epigenetics content, check out the Active Motive blog, motivations at activemotive.com slash blog. Thanks for listening and stay tuned. <laughs>